0: This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or
1: wherever you listen. Good morning, Ollie at Berkeley, and welcome to our Friday special event series. Today we're very excited. To be hosting Professor Robert Full. Robert is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute professor in Integrative biology. He received all of his degrees from SUNY Buffalo before joining the Berkeley in 1986. He directs the Polypedal Laboratory, studying animal motion science to inspire the design of novel materials and robots. He is founder the Berkeley Center of Interdisciplinary Bioinspiration in Education and Research, serves on the National Academies of Sciences Board for Life Sciences, and is an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Robert received Berkeley's Distinguished Teaching Award is a National Academy of Sciences mentor in the life sciences and leads education programs whose goal is to expand the STEM workforce by fostering inclusive excellence. This talk today is called Bio-Inspired Design, Compressed Cockroaches, Gliding Geckos, and Smart Squirrels. Take it away, Robert.
0: Thank you, Matt, and uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for uh, coming. Here are some of the uh, creatures that uh, I'll talk about. I'll start off by uh, explaining uh, my motivation. That's me when I was young. And we used to come from Western New York and drive all the way to the beaches of Florida during spring break. And I really liked uh, weird animals like these crabs and cockroaches. I also had a lot of interest in biomotion because that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to play Major League Baseball. I tried out for the Minor League Pittsburgh Pirates. And, well, I'm here. <laughs> Not there, but I did when I came to Berkeley. Got to got, using the same techniques I'll show you. Got to analyze the motion of a, a pitcher from the Oakland Athletics, which is pretty, which was pretty fun. Uh, as mentioned, I got all my degrees at uh, at SUNY Buffalo, uh, partly because um, I was a first generation college student. My parents didn't go to, uh, didn't finish high school, and I didn't really know what college was. But uh, SUNY Buffalo was great, and I had a wonderful mentor. Uh, I went and did a postdoc at the University of Chicago, a little bit further west, a little bit less snow, a little more windy, and uh, this is my 35th year at Cal, and I I feel incredibly fortunate to to have that that journey. I'm in the Department of Integrative Biology. Uh, What is that? (laughs) Well, we integrate uh, the level of organization of organisms from uh, genes to ecosystems. We look at a diversity of of organisms. And then we also look at them through time, through evolution. And we've gone on to integrate beyond the biological disciplines with engineering, physics, chemistry, mathematics, and, and more. Uh, what this allowed us to do is to really look at this integration to show really how it showcases nature as a library of designers. So this is the area I'll talk about. Some call it biomimetics or biodesign. It's just basically uh, learning from nature. And here are some of the classic examples uh, like a Velcro and, and, and flippers that, that led to wind turbines and, and Lotus, leaf, uh, wonderful paint. And I'll show you our gecko example. Uh, this area of biomimetics uh, is becoming the leading paradigm for the development of new technologies. Uh, that's leading to significant scientific, societal, and economic impact. If you look at the publication rate, it's pretty extraordinary. It's doubling every every two to three years, uh, whereas most uh, areas in science it's about it's about a dozen. Uh, there was a journal founded in 2007. I got to be that that founder, founding, called Bioinspiration and Biomimetics out of uh, out of London in the Institute of Physics. Uh, and I've been really fortunate to be its editor-in-chief since 20, 2013. And it has wonderful examples of this, of this area. And I get to see everything from around the world, uh, all, the, all the different uh, discoveries and how they've been translated. And the area in particular of most rapid growth was, is bio-inspired robotics. And so that's what I'm going to show you some examples of. Uh, there's really a, now, like a zoo of amazing robots. And every day there are new ones that are being discovered. And so to this end, we, connect, we collect, uh, created a center called CYBER, the Center for Interdisciplinary Biological Inspiration and in Education and uh, Research. Uh, to look at this, I'll show you the research, but I will talk about the education at the end. Uh, and more recently, uh, American uh, uh, Association of Advanced of Science, AAAS, founded another journal in 2016 called Science Robotics because robotics was such, so game-changing. And Berkeley got the inaugural cover shown here from my colleague uh, in electrical engineering science, uh, Ron, Ron Fearing for his, uh, his hopping robot. I'll show you a, a video of that at the end. And so I'm very fortunate to be on its uh, science advisory board uh, to, to uh, participate in the publishing of the wonderful discoveries. So what I wanna do uh, this morning is to basically show you the, the areas of the field through the discoveries we made when the lessons we've learned from nature. So I'll go through these, these four. Uh, the first lesson we've learned is that animals are really good at uh, managing energy effectively. So this is the area I'll talk about as bio-inspired field robotics. And so this is what we do in my lab. This is a cockroach running on a treadmill. Um, And you probably should ask, why are you doing this? Uh, This is another cockroach. This is an eight-legged scorpion. A 44-legged centipede running on a treadmill. And an eight-legged sideways running ghost crab, the ones I used to chase on the beach. Uh, Fastest terrestrial invertebrate. Uh, And we want to understand their motion. In fact, the, the mantra of our lab is, Diversity enables discovery. Looking at these diverse creatures gives us hints about novel principles. Now, in terms of movement, you might think, okay, well, you know, we get more legs. Are you then closer to the perfect way to move? A a wheel? Uh, And many people have hypothesized this as as one possibility. That's not what we see at all. (laughs) What we find is that running with legs is like a bouncing ball. Uh, you actually take the energy of motion, you store it in a spring, and then you release it back. And you say, well, how, how could that be for, for these different uh, creatures? But well, here's what we discovered. We discovered two, four, six, and eight-legged animals all bounce along like a pogo stick. We call it a mass spring system. So your one-leg Works like two legs of a trotting dog working as one, or three legs of an insect, they use tripods, or four legs of a crab, all bouncing along like this kangaroo. And they all have about the same relative stiffness when we, when we got this. We wondered then, uh, since robots couldn't really venture outside, if we took the principles we discovered here from the creatures and made a robot with a, a, a leg that was uh, similar. Uh, in terms of the stiffness of a spring, could it run outside? And uh, here's the first robot that could uh, maneuver uh, effectively outside using legs. We called it Rex for a robot
1: uh, hexapod. It can go two or three meters per second. And here's the commercial version
0: of Rex. It's sold by Boston Dynamics. Um, you may have seen that they also make uh, humanoid robots and dog, dog robots that, that do routines like dancing and things. But this, is, this one was tested uh, to show the advantage of legs over uh, 40 different surfaces. Uh, and it's, you know, far, like this, this uh, difficult terrain, it's far superior to anything with tractors and wheels. So we really understood the advantages of legs in rough terrain. We also took it to uh, even rougher terrain uh, at the, in Capitol Hill to show the benefits of bio bioinspired design uh, and the wonderful capability of uh, this this area being inspired from uh, from nature. So there's there's wrecks on the on the steps. Now you say, "Well, uh, w- why is my taxpayer money going to this? What what can this really uh, accomplish?" Here's just one scenario to show you we've been working on. Uh, for for years, here's, a, here's Rex. And uh, you may remember there was a, a subway explosion years ago in Spain, a, a series of bombs, and they didn't know uh, what, what to do, the first responders. Is it um, uh, chemical? Is it biological? Is it nuclear? The idea is to send the robots down and to begin to uh, detect what's there quickly uh, and and now Rex also has a little arm on it. So, you know, it's trying to save people. So it doesn't have to pay. It just goes right in and and uh, analyzes what's there or can take a sample and then quickly return it. Um, in addition to the ground robots, there's now a coordination with, with drones that can also fly in and have a different perspective. So Rex now uses a LIDAR, a laser rangefinder to find out where the stairs are, and then it actually changes its gate from that tripod gate uh, to a wave gate in order to uh, maneuver uh, back up the stairs and return the, and return the sample. So you can imagine a bunch of these coming in in whatever entry point is available to quickly determine uh, what, the, uh, what the risk is, what the hazard is. Now, in our study of the cockroaches, we found something quite unusual, which is uh, when the American cockroach goes really fast, it's bipedal. It runs on its back two legs. And the pattern of bouncing is still, whether it's six legs or two legs, just like what you see when you run. And so maybe that Actually, cockroaches were the first biped. (laughs) It's possible. Uh, And of course, to demonstrate this general principle, if you work with amazing engineers like we do, uh, they can actually make robots do this too, even when they're six-legged. So this is a bouncing robot using a same principle. In fact, the principles we've extracted are so general uh, that they can be used to set the stiffness of prosthetics. To allow people to uh, to regain function, uh, and, and so the, the principles are so uh, general uh, that they have uh, uh, are part of uh, the influence of many fields, uh, and we're uh, incredibly excited about the potential uh, application uh, of these uh, of these principles. In addition, when I published that paper that. Cockroaches can run on two legs. I had a call from a company called Pixar, and they said, hey, we're making a movie about bugs, and you have bugs running on two legs. Could you help us make the characters? And so that's what we did. We spent a lot of time making all these characters and helping them, which was pretty pretty interesting, pretty exciting. So here's one of the bipedal bugs. And we learned a lot about how we use motion uh, to develop characters, not copy the, their motion, but develop their, their personalities. And, and so that was a, a, a wonderful uh, collaboration. If, I if you remember anything from my talk, this is what you should remember, which is uh, you never know where curiosity-based research will lead. And, and I hopefully, just in that first example I've shown you that you could not anticipate those kinds of, of connections. All right, the, the second lesson uh, I'll talk about are, is the fact that animals and the environment are really inseparable. Even though we study things in the lab, we know that we need to look at the, the environment. So I'll talk about attachment. And that's a, a show, an example of the incredible advancement in bio-inspired materials. In fact, there's so many things being developed. Here's just a list of the different capabilities of the bio-inspired materials and the creatures that are uh, inspiring them. And this list is just, you know, every day new discoveries come out about uh, the, uh, the, the wonderful capabilities uh, for, uh, for biomaterials. And that's in, in part because natural technologies are now fa- finally moving to a place where nature can be a wonderful teacher. And that's happening light speed. Uh, so attachment, what, what was our inspiration? You know, not not this guy, but this one. So this is, this is a gecko, it's a gecko gecko. And as you know, that geckos are really good at sticking to things. So here's one from a, a, a TV show from France where uh, they're climbing up a plexiglass sheet and slipped. And it's holding on by one finger uh, and one toe and, and uh, doesn't seem to be too disturbed. So it so can hang out everyone to it, just puts the other one down and, and, and reconnects. So we looked at their feet. And what we found is that they they look like alien feet. I mean, these are real gecko feet and they're bizarre, right? They have bizarre toes. Why is that? We still don't quite know why that is. That would be a nice uh, follow up to the next PhD project, but, we, but we've learned some about how they, how they stick with these remarkable toes. And so here's a quick video of what we found. That's about uh, 10 years of work in a few seconds. So if you zoom in on a, a gecko foot, what you'll see is they have these leaf-like structures called lamellae. And if you zoom in on a lamellae, you see the secret. They have huge numbers, millions of hairs, and each of the hair have the worst case of split ends possible. Like a hundred to a thousand split ends, where they become nano size, and so this is really you know a nanomaterials project, and so of course our question was, uh, how do they how do they stick, and so what I told an undergraduate at the time, Tanya, um, well Tanya, you, you know you just have to get the hair, and measure the force that the hair can generate despite the fact that you can hardly see the hair, it's so small and you certainly can't easily manipulate it. Um, well, she didn't know I was joking. And we were working at the time with Stanford on a very fancy microelectromechanical electromechanical system, a MENS, a sensor device for the smallest forces, which is quite a technical achievement. Tanya went, took the, the, the hair, with her surgical hands, glued it to an insect pin. Took a wire, and then pushed it on a wire and bent the wire and measured how much force it required to bend the wire. And she got the same result we did. So she actually measured the force of a single gecko hair. And I would say throughout my career uh, that uh, undergraduates are our secret weapon, uh, and that's because they don't know what can't be can't be done, and that is. Uh, incredibly important when you go for creative. Yes, a lot of times they do things that, that aren't productive, but they come up with things that we don't see because our mind is, is, is fixed. And so I've had just amazing undergraduates at Berkeley uh, and I feel so fortunate. I'll show you some of them, but here's, a, here's Tanya. And so what did we find in looking at this and making these, these force measurements? What we discovered was that uh, the Gecko hairs don't stick by Velcro, or by suction or by uh, glue or, or capillary action, uh, these 2 billion nano size split ends stick by intermolecular forces called van der Waals forces. Uh, it's just hard to believe, it's, um, it's just amazing. Uh, but what we did is we went through uh, and of course got a physicist uh, who works on <laughs> van der Waals forces and we gave him uh, the, the the challenge of give, give us an experiment that we could do uh, that would convince you that that 's really what 's happening and he did he never he didn 't believe that it would work at all it did, and of course he wanted to be in the, the next paper, which he was so it was a wonderful interdisciplinary collaboration now, if you look at these, this is just one gecko right uh, there 's a lot of geckos, and we are incredibly fortunate to have. Uh, museums in our building, in the Valley Life Science building on, on campus. Here's one of them, the Museum of Vertebrate of Zoology. And it literally is a library of design ideas. You know, it's not a, a public museum, but it has incredible research uh, resources uh, where you have access to, to biodiversity. You can see how important it is. Here's my, here's my former graduate student, Ann Petey, who says, okay, I'm going to look and see all these different geckos and how different uh, their, uh, their hairs may be. And that's what she did for part of her thesis. And what she found was this incredible diversity. So the one I, I showed you on, is on the, on the left, but uh, all of them have different hairs of different structure, size, thickness, different numbers of split ends. Why? Honestly, we still don't know. My guess is that it allows them to stick better to particular surfaces, but, uh, but, you know, but we don't know. Tremendous diversity that we want to uh, further explore. So, what we end up doing then uh, is to uh, take actually one of the simplest uh, uh, creatures. It wasn't even a gecko, it's a, it's a lizard, but it just had a hair it, without the extensive branching to, to study. And then, working with my uh, colleague, uh, uh, Ron Fearing, in, in engineering, he was able to make uh, one of the first synthetic self cleaning dry adhesives. Uh, learning from the gecko, a, a, a nano array uh, that had a lot of the properties of what we see in the in the gecko. Now it takes a pretty long time to translate this into products, but one of the uh, former postdocs, who now directs the Max Planck Institute in Germany, uh, started a company called nano Grip Pack. and now finally it's advancing in its association with it with another company to begin to make. Uh, gecko-inspired adhesives for wearables, for different types of sports, as well as uh, medical equipment. And so here's the first human uh, supported by a gecko-inspired adhesive. That's my uh, former graduate student, a professor at Lewis and Clark on the left, and that's his firstborn child. Uh, this was done with a, with a group from Stanford, incredibly exciting. And the reason we're protecting her is because the gecko foot has, has an interesting property. It sticks when you pull down on it, but it releases when you push up. And so we didn't want it to be bumped and have her ever fall. And, you know, she's going like, Dad, what are you doing? You know, why am I doing this? It was pretty funny. But, uh, but we could show the, the incredible effectiveness of this kind of adhesive. And now then you might ask, well, then how do they actually let go? I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a also an a important question. Here's what they do, which is pretty weird, right? So they peel their toes in milliseconds as they, as they run up uh, surfaces. Uh, and and they, they just do this very strange thing. It works well and we understand uh, the mechanism by which this peeling occurs uh, to allow them to detach Well, working with our wonderful colleagues at uh, Stanford, uh, they designed the first robot named StickyBot, which is up on my wall, actually, uh, that could climb up smooth surfaces. So here's StickyBot climbing up with with these uh, gecko-inspired adhesives on its toes. Um, And they decided that, even though they thought it was uh, sort of silly and ridiculous, that, you know, that peeling thing wasn't a bad way. To, to pull off the, uh, their, their toes. Uh, and so uh, this is a remarkable team. Mark Rakowski and Al Kim whos at MIT, amazing uh, uh, robotics engineers. It just shows sort of how all of our projects to really move things forward end up being interdisciplinary teams where each team in different disciplines benefits with their own, own uh, field by the interaction and the collective discoveries are beyond what any single team could do. So no, no, no individual team could, could have done this, but the, the collection does. And that, that's the way we, uh, we, do, our, we do our science to make, to make breakthroughs. And so who would have imagined 10 years later with Tanya that we would be briefing the United States House of Representatives, a STEM ed caucus on undergraduate research and American innovation? Uh, extraordinary, although it's, it's quite a challenge to uh, be a capital <laughs> But again, I hope this shows you another example that literally you never know where curiosity-based research will will lead. And so uh, in the geckos, Ann Petey, that student I mentioned, she was trying to discover how they could run upside down. And it was hard because they kept letting go. <laughs> and she said, you know, when they let go, they always fall on their, on their bellies. They go into this like skydiving Superman posture. I said, what? Okay, let's, let's look at this. Let's make them do that and see what's going on. And so we put them on, underneath the surface, shook it a little bit, and here's what we discovered. Now that's real time. If we slow it down, you can see what they do. They use their tail to do an air writing response. They just swing their tail around. And then they're in the, the skydiving posture. Now, this was unusual because they were never have shown to glide in nature. They don't have the gliding adaptations of, of other lizards. So with my colleague, uh, Robert Dudley, we, we used his uh, wonderful vertical wind tunnel. So you've probably seen people practice skydiving in these. The air blows up. Uh, and we put a little uh, tree trunk out, outside it. Uh, and then we wanted to see, could, could they... Could they glide? And what we found was absolutely. They could do actually beautiful uh, equilibrium gliding uh, in, this, in this wind tunnel. And it was, it was amazing how they could uh, uh, be uh, so stable. Here's a picture of it. So here's, here's the fact that they can glide, but you can also see their wonderful adhesive toes there, the lamellae. And here's what they could do with their tails. So that it turns out they could steer with their tails. They swing it one way, they turn left, they swing it the other way, they they turn right. Sort of an amazing uh, capability with their tails. And so of course, then we had to see if they glide in nature. Uh, And so picking another graduate student, Artigun Yusefi, off he went to uh, Singapore and, and Southeast Asia to look at these creatures and try to see if he could see them actually gliding in nature. So here's the first glide in nature that we captured. Uh, the animal's at the end of the red line. And then if you look on the right, you'll see it, it hitting a tree. All right, let me show you what happens when they, when they uh, collide with the tree. It's, it's unbelievable actually. Uh, they're going six meters per second and watch how they uh, interact with the tree. They crash headfirst into the tree And then they go head over heels backwards, and they use their tail for stability. Because they're small, they don't don't get injured, and and that's the way they can uh, adapt for for landing. Ardian was able to uh, build a physical model of this landing, a soft uh, robot gecko, uh, where we could manipulate the parts to test whether or not uh, the tail was important and really how they how they attach to surfaces. And could this be a landing mechanism for vehicles that are gliding or flying? Okay, uh, so that one is on uh, bio-inspired materials. Let me talk about the, the next one, one of the hottest areas are uh, bio-inspired soft robots. And this is an area where it's really important because we've made a lot of great robots and then you take them outside and they break. (laughs) They're really not usable. And so one of the distinguishing features of, of animals is that they're so robust. They're incredibly robust. And so the whole uh, industry of designing devices is shifting uh, from rigid structures to, to soft structures uh, like we see in the, in the, in the animals. In fact, uh, it's just an explosion again. And so if you look at all of these different bio-inspired soft robots and the number of publications in the, in the new field of soft robotics, it's just taken off. And, uh, and in our journal, that's, that's one of the uh, most frequent uh, papers that we, that we publish is that capability of, of soft materials that you can use for so many different things. And so, so what did we wonder about? we wondered about the cockroaches and you think of them as kind of crunchy and things, but they actually have they're actually good soft robots. Their skeleton provides support and protection, the anchors their muscles. They can locomote with it. They can sense with it. But if you look at the, the exoskeleton carefully, what you see is that it's really just a bunch of skeletal plates and skeletal tubes uh, with a, with a compliant membrane attached to it. And so, uh, again, collaborating with my colleague, uh, Ron Fearing, he pioneered a new uh, way to design a soft robot, an origami approach called smart composite microstructures. So what he was able to do is to um, take a design drawing, laser cut it, laminate it, and then fold it up to make a robot. And so here's one of the first robots it's called Dash for dynamic autonomous sprawled hexapod. Uh, and you could then design in robustness that would allow it to really function uh, for, a, for a task in, in nature. Uh, and so you have to be careful what you tell graduate students because you said uh, just off, oh, what happens if you throw it off the top of a building? <laughs> so they did that with <laughs> the computer science building. Here, here here's their thesis. Uh, hitting the ground and we're wondering, is it still working? It's still working, that's pretty robust. Even more extraordinary than that, the group of, uh, of graduate students realized that, hey, we, we should form a startup. <laughs> uh, this, this could be pretty neat uh, for a design of, of an educational robot. And so they did, they did a Kickstarter, uh, uh, developed a, a, a wonderful design, uh, called it uh, Dash Robotics. Uh, and amazingly, worked really effectively, so effectively, uh, that uh, Mattel picked it up for a, for a toy robot. They called it Kamagami. Here's the actual robot. And I'll tell you later, the cool thing is, uh, in, in classes at Berkeley, the students get to build this origami robot for, for flat sheets test it and, and redesign with it. Okay, so so that's the, the sort of the, the notion of what you might do for designing uh, with this with this incredible uh, soft robotics approach. Well my graduate student Akasha Jaram wondered you know can this explain how they seem to be able to go anywhere? Uh, and so what we did is we said okay let's check that out we'll CT scan them and we'll have them go through the smallest crevice that we could, they can go through a crevice that is the, the height of, of two stacked U.S. pennies. They can compress their body by over 50%, uh, which is extraordinary, right? How do they do this? Uh, and so we took a look at this. So here is the cocker standing up on the left, its normal freestanding height. And we went through and, and looked at the smallest gap it could go through, which is three millimeters. And so you'll see that like going through it in, in, in real time. So they can squish through almost anything because they don't have hard parts like a, a mouse might or something. They, 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 can, they just squish. And they're really good at going through these, these, tiny, these tiny spaces. How good are they going through them? Well, uh, they can go th- through uh, these Tiny spaces, three millimeters or four millimeters, and my students wondered. My undergraduates, uh, particularly, said, "You know, we wonder how they could if they could locomote through uh, vertically compressed spaces. So it's like two plates, one on top of the other, and, and go into that space and then and then run through it." And then I said, "Well, that you know that's silly. They're squished in half. Their feet can't touch the ground. You know, they can't move. Now that's a waste of time to 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 try to, to, to do that kind of experiment." And they said we already done it. <laughs> here's and here's the results, which is just amazing to me. So the top one is unconfined locomotion. So there's no top to it. And it's real time, which is so fast you can hardly see it because they can run a meter and a half a second. Uh, and and then we slow it down 20 times. So here's the unconfined version, it's just really fast. And you can see, you know, they're moving along with it with a particular gate, this kind of alternating tripod. The next one is where it's compressed a bit really still really fast, but now you can see how they're altering their gait and they're using you know their legs differently they're using different parts of their legs. The bottom one is the smallest surface that uh, gap that they could uh, uh, confine space that they could move in four millimeters so I'll first show it real time and then I'll slow it down twenty times okay this is so this is real time now it's slowed down twenty times so. Yes, it is the case that in the smallest spaces in your walls, in your ceilings, in your floors, that they can zoom around that fast. And what we found is that they're not using their feet at all. They're compressed and they're using the spines on their leg uh, to have sufficient friction in order to move. So then we wondered, how, how robust are these? Well, if you're an engineer and you want to test that, you put them in a materials testing machine. So we did that. And so here's the test of their robustness. Uh, No cockroach was harmed in this experiment. We tested them actually flying and running before and after this, and this did not do anything to them. So we looked at their stress strain relationship, uh, different rates. And what we discovered remarkably was that uh, even at 800 times their body weight of squishing them, uh, they weren't injured. Right, so it's, just, so it's just amazingly robust. So we said, okay, we have to build something like this uh, to test to see if uh, it can also withstand this kind of compression. So, so my student looked at the uh, architecture of the creature and built one of these origami uh, robots. He called it Crom for crawling robot with articulated microstructures. <laughs> uh, so here's Crom freestanding and here it is compressed. And here's a video of a prom running uncompressed and then compressed. In our interactions with first responders in FEMA, they told us, we first, it looked much more like a cockroach originally. And they said, you can't do that. Imagine someone's trapped and a cockroach is coming at them. And so we made this shell that we think is a little bit easier to <laughs> interact with. Uh, but, uh, but it can do it, it can move even though it's compressed 50% uh, because of this wonderful nature of being a, 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 a soft uh, creature. And so uh, we now envision that bio squared robots can have tremendous impact on conservation, monitoring, inspection, search and rescue, uh, security. And we're looking at uh, this with uh, 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 Professor Robert, Robin Murphy who runs a wonderful center uh, for urban search and rescue and, uh, and people who've interacted with, with FEMA. Uh, so we're really excited about that capability of getting information that's important really quickly. Again, I hope that this is another example of the fact that you never know where curiosity-based research will lead. We just wondered how they could squish through stuff. And that, and it's, that's amazing, actually, to, to then be able to take those principles and use them. Okay, the last one I'll talk about uh, is our uh, ongoing project now, a recent project on the fact that animals can learn. And we call this area uh, cognitive biomechanics. So we're talking about bio-inspired learning, decision-making, and even creativity and uh, innovation. And so you may have heard a while back that, uh, that DARPA had a robot contest called the DARPA Robotics Challenge. Uh, it was challenging. It's actually really hard to get robots to operate in unstructured environments. I know you see them doing amazing things, but they didn't have three months to practice on the same uh, s- uh, s- situation, same scenario. They had to do novel, novel environments. And uh, it's really hard, uh, and yet you know, not, not so hard for creatures. And so what's the difference? That's what we wanted to find out. So this is a big challenge. Uh, so we call this uh, cognitive biomechanics. Uh, and the animal we selected is a squirrel. So if you've ever been on Berkeley campus, there's a lot of squirrels uh, and people feed them all the time. And that was an advantage for us because it turns out the squirrels don't perform if you put them in small little cages. So we actually wanted to study them outside. And it turns out, we had one of the world's experts, Professor Luc- Lucer Jacobs, on squirrels from the psychology department. Just incredible wealth of knowledge uh, to, that we, we worked together on this project. And, and so, you know, why are we looking at, at squirrels? It's because they can do this. It's amazing, actually. How do they know what their capability of body, their body is? How do they know that the next branch is going to support them? Because if they make a mistake, the hawk eats them. Right. And so, so how, how do they know this? It's a it's an incredible capability. And so, uh, recently, uh, uh, Nate Hunt uh, worked on this for his PhD, is now a professor at the University of Nebraska. Uh, and uh, we we uh, published it in the journal Science. And so, here's what we did so, we took this magnetic board with perches on it and we wheeled it outside to the eucalyptus forest behind. Uh, uh, to the side of our building uh, and so here's the setup that usually take turns but that that one tried to cheat and cut in line they take turns uh, and we uh, give them peanuts they like peanuts and we train them a little bit to, uh, to begin to get used to the to the structure as you see here but this is this is free ranging this is outside you can see a person students walking in the background uh, and what did we do here's here's one of the the key experiments. And so what we did is we said, okay, um, we're going to give them rods or like branches of three different stiffnesses, put a peanut uh, in in the landing perch and, and have them jump to get the peanut. And the question was, what would they do on these rods of different stiffnesses? Because uh, if it was important for them uh, to jump off the stiff part, then they'd have to jump a long way whereas they may wanna run down to the more compliant part so they only have to jump a short distance. And so we hypothesized that there was a trade-off between their gap size, how far they have to jump, and how compliant their their surface, their, their branch was they're jumping off of. We wanted to try to interrogate their brain about how they're making these decisions. And what we found was, sure enough, animals selected a shorter gap distance when the branches were stiffer. Uh, and a longer gap distance when the branches were compliant. But what we assumed is that, oh, well, they're probably equal in their decision-making, their their trade-off. They're both equally important. This was completely wrong. Uh, And we could interrogate their decision-making and it showed with a simple model that the animals cared six times more about jumping off a stable surface than how far they had to jump. And so so that's a beginning to try to understand their, their decision making. And then we did another experiment. We did an experiment where we had a, a very stiff uh, uh, platform. We had them jump off of it. They landed perfectly every time for the stiff platform, not a difficult task. And then we made the platform look exactly the same, except it was
1: incredibly compliant. And so here's what happened for the first jump.
0: We did 652 trials and they never fell, but you can, but they just made it in this one. And it turns out that all it took were five jumps until they were able to learn to land perfectly on the perch is so, sort of remarkable learning for a pretty, pretty difficult task. And so then we were pretty excited. And we said, okay, let's do another experiment. Let's uh, do tra- a transfer learning. Let's move the perch back. Let's move it up. So it's harder. And let's see if the ones who did it before do better than the ones who didn't. So we have the high-speed cameras rolling, we're collecting data ready for the first trial. And here's what it did. It like parkoured a wall uh, and added a control point. Uh, it, was, it was innovating right before us. And of course it landed and looked at us like, okay, we're squirrels, you know, um, we can we can get into bird feeders but but it was it was remarkable because that was not you know something that they they did before and so we I, I, there's a lot we have lots of examples where they innovate like this where, where we're trying to do a particular experiment and it's more important that we find out uh, how they how they get around it uh, to understand uh the the cognitive part of it and so we have lots of examples that which is pretty pretty amazing and and incredibly incredibly exciting and so uh, we have a wonderful interdisciplinary team uh, working on this of uh, people that work on uh, metamaterials, uh, ones that are actually recording uh, in, in in rats from the hippocampus to try to understand what the brain can tell us, and we have uh, roboticists. But we're just you know in, in the uh, in, in sort of middle stages of this uh, development, and we I can't I'm, I can't show you the the agile robot yet, the most agile robot ever built is our goal. And, you know, we're not there, but we have some hints about it. And so let me show you the kind of latest uh, uh, robots that we're going to, to match together that hopefully will also allow this kind of decision-making uh, and thinking. So here, here they are. So uh, the one on the upper left is the fact that we found spines are probably pretty useful. None of the robots we see have built the spines. And then uh, there's one that uh, can uh, maneuver and, and jump on the bottom, both of those from, from our, our lead at the University of Pennsylvania. And then the upper right is a, a robot called Salto from uh, a grant we worked with uh, Ron Fearing on at Berkeley, uh, making uh, just a monopod hopper, and monopod jumper. So these are all the beginning robots to think about uh, decision-making, learning, and innovation. So you can see the backbone bending one, you can see the one on the bottom doing jumping, and the monopod hopper just you know hops, <laughs> uh, and so we we're, we we really do power amplification for animals to do that hopper, and so we're trying to put all these together to give it the uh, the uh, agility uh, that we see uh, in the in the squirrels. And what partly we found was that much of the capability of the control is built into the morphology itself. Uh, so you also have to have a brain and a control system, but so much of it is built in the morphology. We're calling this uh, computational morphology. And and the more we work with the metamaterials people, the more we realize that you can build a lot of intelligence right into the materials, which is what we find uh, in in the in the creatures. So it's a very it's a very good lesson. So another example of where you never know where curiosity based research will lead. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll see uh, what we can develop for these in these squirrels. So let me finish by telling you how uh, we try to share our approach in research with these wonderful interdisciplinary teams with students. How could we set up a program uh, to, to do that? And that's what uh, uh, HHMI has supported us on. So I got this wonderful HHMI grant. Uh, and the um, program I called Eyes Towards Tomorrow. Uh, and so it's, it's uh, involve, imagine, invent, and innovate. Uh, and what it is, is it really is uh, the wonderful uh, integration of discovery-based learning. So all our classes, are, we try to have students make original discoveries in the, class, in the classes through, through labs and, and, and field experiments. And it's uh, combined with design-based learning, which is what you know Obama really pushed—that uh, for a nation of makers, because the real power of the of the revolution is, is in its democratizing effect. Because now almost anybody can can innovate, and that's that's what's happening. And we we strongly believe that uh, diversity is demanded for that innovation. That the real promise rests in uniquely diverse communities that are engaged. In these interdisciplinary approaches to solve uh, important societal problems. So, to this end, I, I created a course called Bioinspired Design, uh, which I, which in fact, the, the labs are going on right now as we speak. The students are are doing a wonderful makerspace activity where they're designing uh, novel splints for uh, for finger injuries. Uh, and in the past, they've uh, built a wonderful prosthetic devices, I'll show show you that, but uh, this is open to everybody. There's no um, prerequisites. Our aims are science literacy. That is, we we have the students use the primary research discoveries and extract the principles. We focus on giving them 21st century skills uh, and teaming and and community building, uh, as well as uh, a career path. A connection to the future. We have 120, 180 students, 36 design teams, half freshmen, sophomores, half non-STEM students, uh, the majority female, and about a, a quarter underrepresented and marginalized students from over 40 different majors. So we have incredible diverse interests across the campus to allow people to get together and share their unique uh, per- perspectives for for uh, discovery and innovation. And we do it in the Jacobs Institute of Design Innovation. This is like, we have incredible space, thanks to to Paul Jacobs, a four-story maker space building for for undergraduates where they can do 3D printing and laser cutting and all these wonderful things. And there are interdisciplinary uh, design-related communities there. Uh, One of the things we did is to uh, have them initially 3D print a prosthetic hand for children. So that looks like this uh, and they, uh, uh, and, and they fr- first uh, printed a finger uh, and their assignment was uh, to, um, to print their finger, 3D print their finger, and then stand by the 3D printer and take a selfie. Uh, and they, 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 they kind of, they really like this exercise. And then as a team, we had them assemble all the fingers onto the hand. And so it was a great way to introduce them to the makerspace. And then they have several design projects they make. As I mentioned, an origami robot, they also make a gecko inspired adhesive and design things from it. Then they have a final project. Here's examples of of a few of their final projects. One team developed a gecko inspired tail balancing system for the elderly, very cool. Or a spider inspired uh, sensing to restore touch and amputees. Uh, One on... uh, Muscle atrophy resistant casts. So based on seahorse skeletons. So, you know, you wanna keep your movement in ways that doesn't, don't harm you, but you wanna restrict movements in, in other directions this is incredibly clever. Uh, and uh, one on a voice recovery system for throat cancer patients based on songbirds use a different part of, of their uh, larynx to, uh, to, produce, to produce sound. It's just an amazing project. So they all do the showcase uh, they do a video and do a poster uh, to show off their stuff. In the larger picture, that's only one piece of what we're creating, uh, which is that's the Bioinspired design course, which is part of a student-centered creative action community, we call it. because it also includes decal classes. Decal classes at Cal are where students teach the class. They're student led classes. And so a couple of these uh, that, that students uh, teach, uh, intro and, and first take the big course and and also ones for furthering design and then we also have coupled to uh, registered student organizations student-led organizations It's the Berkeley bio design community where a bunch of communities get together and they have wonderful activities like the fons and bring in speakers and go go visit different different companies we're really fortunate recently to have Um, Berkeley and a wonderful donor support a new program called the Berkeley Discovery uh, Program. And and here's sort of the arc that we want students, so when they enter in, they want them to follow over their career time at at Cal. Uh, And uh, we applied for one of these, and fortunately, we got one of these departmental innovation awards for integrated biology. We called it Discovery for All, Empowering Inclusive Communities in Integrated Biology. So, so stay tuned, we're really excited to share the kind of approach I showed you uh, with, the, with the campus. And, uh, and just to conclude, uh, we really see that diverse communities hold the key to creativity, that uh, each voice has a unique benefit because we all benefit
1: from inclusive excellence. Thank you and go Bears. Robert, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, I got to show my son about this parkour squirrel. He likes doing that all over the city. But we have time for a couple of questions. Um, There are some people here who are very concerned about the well-being of that poor cockroach.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, they, they they were never heard. And literally, we quantified it. That is, they could run the same speed after they were squished, and they could we, they they can fly if the temperature is hot. and th- th- nothing happened to them. Now, you of course, when we enter our building, we see people that have stepped on cockroaches every day, <laughs> so, you know, uh, and and we could actually tell them how they could more effectively squish them. Actually, <laughs> but, but uh, they weren't harmed, and, and they're just so robust. But now we can begin to make it. So uh, it, it it's really the soft robotics area is it's just exploding. You're going to see. Versions of this and not just robots, but all devices having softer properties, because who wants a big metal thing interacting with people in your home or with children or, or your pets? It's just not that's not going to happen. Right. we are going to have to be soft structures to, to make them to make them usable.
1: No, that's cool. Um, questions that's specifically about that cockroach is is about whether you were able to measure the effects of, say, trauma. Like if it's able to demonstrate that it felt something or that it even thought something, um, I have you, no, I have no,
0: I have no idea how to do that <laughs> or what that or what that means because they do this all the time. I mean, they, you know, that's what they do. They they squish themselves, and so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, an
1: occurrence that uh, that's part of their natural behaviors. Well, that is cool. There's a lot of people who are saying in the chat that this is their favorite talk of all. If, if you do have other questions for Robert, um, you can put them in there now and he can answer them. There's one at the very beginning here. Um, mm-hmm. Do you also study the movements of underwater creatures like the octopus well, or squid?
0: Yeah, we don't, but there's a bunch of other people that do. And so that, so that they do it in, in all the different uh, environments. And there's been a lot of progress on uh, looking at swimming. Again, the big breakthroughs are with, um, with soft robots, ones that can, you know, can bend very much like we see in, in nature. And yes, there has been oh, incredible work in Europe. There's been a whole octopus project. So if you look this up, there are, there are soft octopus robots that both run on the, the ground, but they jet propel too. Uh, and, they're, and they're amazing. And so, yeah, that thing at, again, light speed development is, uh, is amazing. I Literally, I get to see papers come in every day. It's like, it's, it's incredible. This is just, uh, and, and, you know, they may demonstrate something about building an octopus robot, but really what it is, it's a demonstration of a greater capability that can be used for many things, right? It's just a really nice example of the capability of different materials and control systems and, and, and designs.
1: That's cool. And there's a couple of more um, kind of practical questions here. There's a uh, question about whether high school and middle school teachers yeah. um, could observe this kind of teaching and curiosity building in STEM. Sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. Absolutely. So we have, we have, uh, we've done, we do uh, uh, tours of our center. That's one way to do it. And also, um, for a plug for the Lawrence Hall of Science, we work with the Lawrence Hall of Science, and they they run uh, with us teaching it a bioinspired design camp for high school students, and so that that's pretty that's pretty fun, but um, but for observing the the class and things, we'd be, we'd be glad to set something up absolutely. Uh, with that, so our dissemination, we've been able to disseminate class to to this class and program to. For other universities, as well as, like I said, the Lawrence Hall Science Summer Camp. But ultimately, we, we think it's sitting in a, a sweet spot where it can be used for a K through 12. Uh, no, no problem. I did, years ago, teach a sixth grade class with this kind of approach. Uh, it totally worked. I mean, obviously, the projects were simpler and we didn't have the quite technology, but the interest is very high and and uh, and the creati- it brings out the creativity. So... I would like to continue to to, to think about how we could develop a, a k through k through 12 program.
1: and what about <clears throat> what about our contingent there are some folks here who would be interested in joining a makerspace um, older learners is there is there a way Sure. so I'm
0: on, I'm on the yeah well that's you know we talked about this a little bit but now if there's real you know interest so I'm on the uh, Jacobs Design Institute uh, Faculty Council. And we, we meet and discuss uh, po- possible programs that we develop. And that's, this is one of the things we talked about, but really didn't um, uh, have, the, have the interest that we needed. Now we can follow up with you if there's that interest. And you know they create programs all the time. So we created a, a Masters of Design uh, program for two years. That is amazing. It's incredible in this amazing makerspace building, and so um, there are tours. There, I think there are tours today of of Jacobs Design Institute that you can take to just kind of see what it's like. But um, but you know, if there's interest, uh, that's that's what the, they do. Is they offer they create programs to potentially uh, uh, allow you to to uh, to do things. And I, I just tell you that that it's all the different programs. Uh, in, in Jacobson and the classes are just so much fun. They're so interesting. Uh, and, and it brings together a, a, a such diverse people. Like I, I would say in our design class, we have you know, a, lot, a lot of different people, but what you see is that the, the people who think they're the, they're the designers of, of a structure or something, uh, especially the engineers, they're not near the most creative people <laughs> that come up with the ideas. I'll take a history major any day uh, for creativity. They're, they're, it's just you know you bring te- you bring what your, your experience has been, and you and as long as you you put it, in, we work on teaming really hard, teaming activities, so that we make sure before there's a consensus that everybody has a voice and everybody shares and they feel comfortable in doing that. And, and then we, when we do that, we have this thing called a collaborative plan where everybody kind of says what they can do, what they're best at. And we sort of, they decide who does what, when and things, and it works out, you know, really well. And so, uh, so it'd be interesting to, to, you know, develop a a program with projects, you know, that, that you might be interested in. I think that would be great. (laughs) Or even, or even sit in on teams or something, or be a part of the, of our our biodesign community, you know, that's another possibility, right? Our our registered student organization. I think Um, this is great. This is wonderful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Robert, um, it's wonderful to have you today and um, to know of your interest and to take up your suggestions. We have been working with the Lawrence Hall of Science on our National Science Foundation grant. Um, which we'll fill you in on. And we've worked great. with the Jacob Center for Design. We are very great. interested in bringing OLLI members together with undergraduates. Uh, we see a lot of potential uh, on both sides, having um, uh, a good exchange. Um, we've done some uh, co-designing work, and, and we definitely see the future for that. And with you. So thanks a lot for today. Great. I
0: great. I'm, I'm- incredibly excited about this and I think that it could add a whole other dimension to the students education if, if we can set up something that would be fantastic okay. outstanding
1: <laughs> okay all right well thanks a lot for today I know we we've just run okay. out of time but um thank you again for okay. all of
0: this. Okay. thanks everybody thanks so much take for care. coming take care
1: You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.